At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. What is the chief end of man? This is the first question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The the chief end, that means what I'm created to do. That means this is the goal of my life. So if somebody's uh, asking you, what's the purpose for my life? What's my life's ambition? What should I do with my life? The answer is still to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So what do those two things mean? To to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, to glorify God uh, is to give Him His due praise. To give thanks to Him and to make Him known for who He is and what He has done. So let's talk about praise for a second. When we praise something, we give it a value. You're the fastest runner. You're the smartest kid in your class. And so as we talk about our God, we say, God, You are the highest God. You are holy. You are perfect. You are beyond all measure. You are Creator and You are a Redeemer. Thus ascribing to Him value that's above everything else. We also give our thanks to God, don't we? Thus, we're acknowledging His power. Lord, thank You for providing for my family during this time. Lord, thank You for the help that You've given my family. Lord, thank You for the blessings that You've given to GCC that it may go forth and preach Your Word in Fayetteville and beyond. We're acknowledging that all of those things come from the hand of the Lord. And also, when we glorify God, we make Him known. To make Him known is to make His name famous, meaning if you like the salsa at a restaurant, you tell people about that restaurant. I'm a salsa snob. I, I will quit going to a Mexican restaurant because I don't like the salsa because it ruins everything else because you put salsa on everything. In the same way, God has changed my life. Therefore, I know that He can change yours. Therefore, I want to make His name known. I know that the Gospel that's contained in the Bible is that that can transform lives. Therefore, I want to make it known. And by making it known, we're glorifying the God that is behind that Gospel. And also, it says to enjoy Him forever. You see, we seek our pleasure and joy 
in who He is and what He has done. John Piper says this, he said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we find our utmost joy in the Lord. Um, this, is, this is a way that God loves us. Okay, this is the way that God loves us is because he loved us enough to reveal himself to us. Right. He reveals himself through the word. He revealed himself through the prophets and through Jesus. Therefore, we can know God and to know God is to be able to glorify him for who he is and what he's done. And in doing so, that gives us our utmost joy. He tells us that in Psalm 16, doesn't he? He says, uh, in your presence there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is our chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, if that's our chief end, if that's our goal for our life, then are you vigilantly seeking to glorify God? I think the, the first way to answer that is, has you, have you come to faith in God through the works of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God. He died in our place and for our sins. Thus, upon believing in Him, we can have eternal life. Because of that, it glorifies God when we trust in His Son for eternal life. But, but also beyond that, are you glorifying God in your prayer? Is your prayer God-centered, God-focused? Are you coming to God with adoration and thanksgiving, or are you leaving, leaving that part out and just talking about yourself? Um, what about your giving? Is your giving sacrificial? Is your giving, in your giving, are you placing your hope and your trust in the Lord who's provided for you and asked of you to return to Him, but a small portion of what He's provided? Thus, when we give, we are glorifying God, saying, God, you have given me this to steward, and, and my gift back to you is to glorify you uh, in the way I give. Also in evangelism, just like I said, we want to make known, make famous the name of the Lord. So in our God glorifying, are we vigilantly evangelizing the lost? Are we vigilantly in our homes raising our children to trust in the Lord? Are we telling our co-workers and our family and our friends about the work that God has done in our lives, therefore making Him known and glorifying His name? The problem is... It's easy to say, yes, yes, I do that, yes. But the problem is, day to day, moment by moment, we're oftentimes seeking vigilantly to glorify ourselves, right? And it's so natural that we would do that. It can go unmissed, or it can go missed. Um, the way to see that is what gets you most riled up. What, what gets you most hot under the collar and bothered, say if something were taken away? I, I know for uh, some of you, if I took your smartphone away. Yep, see? Right there. Need to work on that, Dovey. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It, it, hey, for, for me, if you took my smartphone away, I, I, I would get hot under the collar. I would get bothered. How am I going to do life with a flip phone? If I took your Facebook away. 
If I took your social media away and said, you know what you actually need is a social media fast, um, some of you would get angry, you would get, uh, feel disconnected from the world, uh, you would buck the advice that I'm giving you. Um, what about your me time? You know, I'm always giving of myself, giving to my church, giving to my family. I need my me time. Um, what if that was taken away? Um, it, it, it's oftentimes our comforts and our habits and, and even, our, even our sins that we want to keep close to the vest and say, God, you can have all of my life except, except these things. Um, notice, too, sometimes in a large group, we're, we're pushing our opinions, saying these are the most important, or in a large group, we're belittling others so that we look greater. Um, we focus more on our gaining than our giving. We focus on how much money we're earning or how much we can make from some side hustle versus how much we can give away. And we fight for what's ours and what we think we deserve, that promotion, that respect, that vacation. We fight for these things vigilantly, daily, as we promote ourself. And what does this tell you about yourself? Well, it tells us that we have become our self-appointed self-sovereign. To break that down, it means I put myself in charge. I'm in charge of me. And what that does is oftentimes put us in direct conflict with God. One, if we put ourselves in charge, then we are putting ourselves higher than the God Almighty. If we put ourselves in charge, we are saying, no, it's actually my will that needs to be done. And here's the sad part. When we put ourselves in charge, it's us who gets the glory. If I get that promotion, it's because of the hard work that I did. If, if I have good health, it's because I've been living clean. Um, if I have good children, it's because I'm a good parent. The problem is, if you see my kids acting out, it's because they act like their mom. <laughs> You're laughing because you know it's true. Um, if, if I don't get the job, it's because I've been looked over and nobody appreciates the hard work that I put into the company. And if I sin, I just hide that and we don't, we don't talk about that, right? Because I'm seeking after my glory and for you to know my weakness would take away my glory. Therefore, we don't talk about that. And where does that lead us? Well, it leaves us tired. Some of us in here are frustrated. Some of us are depressed and angry and bitter. And here's the lie. It's all about you. It's all about you. The world is your oyster and is there for you to seek out your joy and your pleasure. Well, some of us in here haven't found that joy and that pleasure that the world promises. Therefore, the angriness, the bitterness, the loneliness, the feeling of being out of control. And here's where it gets bad. It's when we believe that God is working solely for our good. God's working solely for my good and these things aren't happening. God has abandoned me. God doesn't love me. God is punishing me because of my affliction. And if we take this even further, we believe that that's God's ultimate end is to work for my good. 
God's chief end is to work for my good. And we must admit that that's a lie. We seek God when it is convenient for us and when it benefits us because we believe it's about us. But here's the truth. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God. And God is jealous for His glory. And that is for our utmost good. God's glory is for our utmost good. Not seeking after our pleasure. Not seeking after our comfort. But God's glory. This theme today, I believe, explodes out of the text in 1 Samuel. God is about being glorified. In fact, in fact He jealously and unashamedly seeks after it. And we should be eternally grateful for that because at the pinnacle of this revelation, we gain our utmost good. There's no God like our God. And in His presence, there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if you would, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and let us revel in the person and the work of God. 1 Samuel chapter 5 verse 1 says this, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Let's stop there and recap from chapter 4 what we talked about last week. If you remember, the Israelite army was in conflict with the Philistines. The Philistines were pushing into Israel territory and there was a great battle. Uh, the, Isra- the, the, the Philistines were encamped at Aphek and the Israelites at Ebenezer and there was a great battle between there. Such a battle that the Israelite army lost 4,000 of its soldiers. Well, upon this loss... They sent back to Shiloh, which was east of the battlefield, um, and sent for the Ark of God. Now, the Ark of God was a great national treasure for them, and it was set up in Shiloh, which was the nervous center for the religious community in Israel at that time. Um, The Ark of God was built of acacia wood, which is a hard wood that overlaid with gold. Atop it was a seat. It was called the mercy seat. And above it was cherubim, great angels with their wings outstretched. It was said that on the mercy seat that God would meet with His people. And between the wings of the cherubim, God would speak to His people. This was a great national treasure for them. And also, they believed that it ushered in the presence of the Lord. So if you remember last week, the Ark of the Covenant comes to uh, the battlefield, and what happens? Greater defeat, right? They lost 30,000 men in the remainder of the battle. 30,000 men. So upon that greater loss... A messenger runs from the battlefield back to the camp of the, or back to Shiloh and tells Eli, the high priest, what did Eli do? He fell over dead. Uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, who was pregnant, heard of the terrible news, and she gave birth, named her son Ichabod, which means the glory of the God has departed from Israel, and then she fell over dead. Great calamity, great tragedy has befallen Israel now as we come into chapter 5. Their national treasure, their ark of the, of the covenant was gone. 
And they didn't do anything about it. You see, that's the funny part to me. When the, when the ark came into the camp, there was great shouting and adulation. Yay! God is with us! And then God is taken and nothing happens. Nothing happens. In fact, it's a 30-mile march back to Ashdod, which is where the ark was taken. 30 miles back to Philistine territory and nothing happened. Zeal filled them as they felt their lucky rabbit's foot was going to work for them. And fear filled them as that lucky rabbit's foot was taken from them. Now, it doesn't say this in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, but we know from history, from Psalm 78 and from Jeremiah 7, that only a contingent of the Philistine soldiers took back the ark. The rest of them, empowered by their defeat at uh, Ebenezer, marched on to Shiloh and ended up destroying the temple and the people of Shiloh. Great defeat had come upon them. And here's what God says in chapter 78 of the, uh, uh, Psalm 78. He says, um, God was moved to jealousy because of the Israelites' idol worship. Thus, He was full of wrath towards them. He forsook His dwelling at Shiloh and delivered His power to captivity. His glory to the hand of the foe. God allowed that defeat on the battlefield. God allowed the Philistines to come and destroy Shiloh. God allowed Himself to be taken into captivity. For it was for His glory. So what happens when they take the ark, chapter 5 tells us that they set it as a spoil of war at the feet of Dagon, their god. Now Dagon was the head of the pantheon of gods in Mesopotamia. Dagon was known as the fertility or agriculture god. And some people depicted him with a mer- as a merman. Uh, he had a fish body or bottom and a male uh, top. Um, he was the head of the pantheon. Uh, also, Beelzebul was his uh, prince. So they set the, the ark of God at his feet, which was a customary tradition that the gods of the losers would be set at the, go- at the feet of the god of the, the, the winner of the battle. The ark is a gift to Dagon, and it's humiliating in its defeat. Here's a parallel that I got as I I read this. Here's this. God's people had run away. God is in the hands of the enemy. A time when God's... uh, uh, I'm sorry. A time when... um, I'm sorry. Uh, This reminds me of a time in redemptive history. Uh, A time when God's people had run away. A time when... God is in the hands of the enemy as Jesus endures shame and mockery and slander and Satan chuckles in victory. The tomb was sealed and God was silent. Just as God was silent at the feet of Dagon, so He's silent as He's in the tomb. Let's move on to verse 3. It says, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. 
and on the head and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon to this day. God's silence does not indicate defeat. God's silence does not indicate defeat. God was captured and set before the God of the Philistines. Jesus was turned over to the Roman government. God is humiliated again at the feet of this God. And Jesus is put to open shame through flogging, through the cross, and through His burial. God defeats His enemies. Jesus defeats Satan, sin, and death. Here's the parallel. God walks directly into victory, veiled in defeat. As Psalm 78 says, He allowed Himself to go into enemy territory. And as the Gospel says, Jesus allowed Himself to die in our place for our sins, for the joy that was set before Him. So as we see... The, the ark at the feet of Dagon. What happens to Dagon? He falls over. Dagon falls over this stone structure, falls down on its ground, on the ground, in homage to the one true God. The next morning, they set him up again. And what happens again? He falls over again, but this time his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. This was a practice in antiquity where the head and the hands of the dead would be cut off as as a sign of the victory of the the winning uh, side. The God of the Philistines was destroyed by by the God of Israel. Even in his defeat, even in his seeming defeat, he destroys uh, their God. This is because God is jealous for his glory. Genesis 17.1 tells us uh, that God tells Abraham that I am God Almighty. Exodus 22 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow before them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. And Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You see, God's zeal for Himself is good. He's not egotistical, but He alone is above all. You see, God has the right to make these claims. He has the right to make these claims because He is God Almighty. God above all. And He has the right to make these claims because He is the Creator God. You see, Dagon is a created God. The, the, calves, the golden calves that were made in the wilderness by the Israelites were created idols. All of the gods of the Philistines were created gods, yet God the Creator says, worship nothing above me. God the Creator says, I am the Almighty. I'm jealous for my glory. And I'm jealous for your praise.
There's nothing that can stand up to the power of God. And that's, that's our release today. I want you to hear this. There's nothing that can stand up to the power of God. Just as no foreign God can. Neither can any wall that you build stand up before the power of God. There's no chains that bind you today to sin, to death, to shame, to loneliness that can stand up to the power of God. There's nothing that you can do that is beyond the reach of the salvation of God. And God's not telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. God's not telling you He he needs you for that, to break the walls, to break the chains. God doesn't need your strength. He's the God Almighty. You're free to be weak. God doesn't need your wisdom. You're free to be a fool to the world. And God doesn't need your power and your influence. You're free to be a nobody. You're free to be a nobody for Him. He's not asking you for these things. He's not asking you as if He needs you to be strong, to be wise, and and, and to be somebody of influence. All God is asking for is for you to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. You see, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the foolish things of the world. That's me. That's you. To shame the wise. And He chose what is nothing so that no one could boast. And here's the completion of the thought. God is jealous for His glory and that that is for our utmost good. It's for our good because we can be confident that we worship the one true God. There's not a pantheon of gods that we must please and there's not some weird labyrinth that we must go through In this world to save ourselves. This one true God offers salvation that you can find nowhere else. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And you cannot secure it. But through faith in the one true God. His son Jesus. Who gave his life for you. It's for our good because we can be assured that He's what our hearts are longing for. You must recognize that we spend the majority of our life seeking for our joy, yet we don't find it from the things of the world. The promises of the world are empty promises. The promises of the one true God are full. They're complete. And our heart finds its longings in Him. It's for our good Because when we give our life away to Him, we're missing out on nothing. There's nothing that the world can offer to you right now that you wouldn't freely give away for one moment to spend with God for eternity in heaven. We talk about when you're on your deathbed, do do you look back and say, I wish I could have worked more. I wish I could have had a nicer car. I I wish I could have been a a, a better guy. No. I believe that. We question those things. We question what we've wanted and desired all of our life and focused it back on 
I, I wish I would have given more. I wish I would have served more. I wish I would have loved more. I wish I would have discipled my children more. I wish I would have been there in the face of God to them as we lie on our deathbed. Let's move on to to verse 6. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and He terrified and inflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So we see God making a mockery of Dagon, but He didn't also only do that. He also afflicted Ashdod with tumors. And it says this, it says, They were terrified and afflicted. So terrified, much like the, the Egyptians as the plague of locusts come in and devour their crops, much like the Egyptians as rain pummeled their houses, much like the Egyptians as the, the river Nile ran red with blood and as the screams went out the night of the angel of the Lord coming through, taking the firstborn of every family. That, that's the terror that the Lord inflicts in the same way here. What is going on? What is happening? Boils are coming on, onto my body. Tumors are coming onto my body. We've just taken in this, this God of the Israelites and these things are happening. And it sends a terror through the city and through its surrounding territory. It, and so the question is, what... what what are these? What are these tumors? Um, if you read the King James version, it, it calls these tumors emeralds. Uh, emeralds, when translated, is hemorrhoids or the bleeding piles. Um, it's one way of looking at it that's more of a inconvenience that God placed on them. It's inconvenient to have bleeding hemorrhoids. Okay. <laughs> I doubt they had the, the little, never mind. Yeah, donut seat. Yeah, yeah. What's, what may be more biblically accurate or historically accurate is this was probably a bubonic plague. As we see in chapter 6, uh, when the diviners of the Philistines told the leaders of that nation to send a guilt offering back to uh, Israel with the ark, they told them to make golden tumors and golden mice. Okay, so what the bubonic plague is, it's a, is a bacteria that's carried on mice. It's called Yersinia pestis. Uh, Yersinia pestis is the bacteria that causes it, and how it's transported is fleas from the mice bite the mice and then bite people. That's nasty. But what it causes is a terrible, deadly boil and tumor on the body. Thus, the affliction is not just a light affliction of hemorrhoids. It's a deadly affliction of pain and suffering that God has placed upon this, uh, this, this, this nation. And now, much like Pharaoh, who endured the plagues of God in Egypt, they say, get out of here. You've you got to go. You've got to go. 
So here we go in in, in verse 7. It says, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. So how do you get rid of a plague? You send it to your neighbor. (laughs) You send send it to your neighbor. So they're saying, how do we get rid of these boils, these tumors? This ark is causing destruction in our temple. They gather the leaders of the Philistine League, so the leaders from the multiple cities of Philistia, and they say, How do we get rid of this? And they say, well, let's send it to Gath as a test. If when we send it to Gath, the affliction stays here and doesn't follow the ark, then it's actually not the God of Israel that is afflicting us. It's just pure coincidence that we have tumors and a toppled God that we have defeated. You see, if the the plague stays with them, God has been defeated. It's only a coincidence that these things have happened. But if we send it to Gath and the plague follows the ark, then God has not been defeated and his wrath is being poured out over our cities. Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of this of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. It doesn't seem like it was a coincidence. As Gath learns, uh, the ark uh, was brought to them with a dreadful hand of the Lord. Uh, this must mean what they didn't want it to mean. That they had not defeated God. They had not defeated the God of Israel, but that He had willingly come into their land to show off His glory and to punish them for their sins. Panic, affliction, tumors. The same things that were in Ashdod are now in the city of Gath. God is jealously seeking His glory here. But, so what happens next? They do the same thing. Let's go on to verse 10. They do the same thing. It says, So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines like they had before and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own people. I lost my place. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went out to heaven. A 30-mile trek from the battlefield to Ashdod, Dagon is toppled by the mighty hand of the glory-seeking God of Israel. Affliction comes upon the Philistines, 
So they say, let's send it away. They send it to Gath. The same thing happens in Gath. They say, let's send it away to Ekron. The same thing happens in Ekron. God's heavy hand, His presence is manifested in those enemy cities. So now they say, let's get rid of it. We we, we don't want it anymore. God's power is being displayed here in a heavy and mighty way. And there's one thing that they do at the end. There's one thing that they do at the end that's different from all the other cities. It says, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The cry of the city went up to heaven. God is getting His due glory because the enemies of God are crying out to Him for mercy and relief. This is what the the other cities did not do. Those who oppose God direct their cries to Him. Those who fear Him cry out for His mercy. It reminds me of a psalm. It says, I waited patiently on the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon the rock making my steps secure. But you may be thinking in your mind right now, oh, that psalm is directed towards those who trust in the Lord, those who believe in God, and this is an enemy city full of people who hate God. But must I remind you that there was a point in your life when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, the, the, the inhabitants of Ashdod and Gath and Ekron are following the prince of the power of the air. They're following Satan. And there was a time in your life that, that you were too. You see, that's what Ephesians 2 says. It says, uh, and, and you all. So, this God who desires to get His glory, He desires to get His glory in in a way through His love that He hears the cries of sinners. He hears the cries of sinners when they cry out to Him. Now, I'm not saying that this city was saved. Uh, I'm not saying that um, His his hand had relented from them. What I am saying to you is there's hope for you today. As we turn from a a, a position of opposition from the Lord to a position where we cling to Him for our salvation, there is hope for you today. There's hope for us today in how we glorify God. We glorify Him in our salvation because it alone comes from Him. We glorify Him in our life as we make it God-centered. And that only comes from the work that He has done for us. Because without Him, we are doomed to be despised like the Philistines. But, But through Christ and through a loving God who desires to be glorified, but desires to be glorified in such a way that it is for our own good, that He allows Himself to hear the cry of the needy, hear the cry of the sinner, and and apply His love and His salvation uh, to us.
I think the full circle for this text is, is that Jesus is, is that true ark. Jesus is the true ark. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the dominion of God as his name is above all names. And, and, and Jesus is the salvation of God. We, we must not, like the Israelites did, treasure the religious artifact. We must not, as the Israelites did, turn to foreign gods, turn to ways that are opposed to God, but we must glorify God by seeking His Son and doing all that we can to enjoy Him forever. So, I think there's three points of application that we can take from this text and apply right now to our lives. Number one, you're not God. You're not God. Your will is not greater than God. Therefore, we submit our will to the one true God. Your glory is not greater than God. Therefore, the praise and adoration that our heart desires, we must deflect to the one who actually deserves it. And upon giving our lives away, know that we're missing out on nothing. Missing out on nothing. Number two, give God glory through your life devoted to Him. We were talking in community group on Friday how our weakness shows God's glory. A life devoted to Christ doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It doesn't mean that we have all the health. It doesn't mean that we're not afflicted to go through trials or tribulations. But what it does mean is that in those trials and tribulations, we can point to God as our sustainer and our redeemer. So so when people ask, how did you endure that? How are you going through that? How are you sustaining? We say, it's not from me. It's not by me. But it's through God who loves me so much that he reveals himself to me so much that I can enjoy him and trust in him and hope in him even in my trial, even in my affliction, even today. Last, know that the fruit of giving your life away to glorifying God is for your utmost good. It's for our utmost good. One, we know the destruction of the Lord is coming. The wrath of the Lord is coming for those who do not believe in His Son, Jesus. You see, the ultimate act of glorifying God is belief in the Son. Wrath is coming upon those who don't believe. But in believing in Him, we have life and we have it more abundantly. We have pleasures and they are forevermore. We have joy and it is the utmost joy. So when we give our lives away, when we give our money away, when we give our time away, when we give everything away, we are the most filled, the most loved, and the most hopeful for the day when Jesus comes again. And restores all things. We, we won't be clinging to our stuff. But, but our arms will be open wide. Free of the things of this world to receive him. Um, I have one more minute. And so what I want to do is <laughs> utilize it. Uh, I just want to read you Psalm 16. I've, I've said it several times. And so I just want to read you the whole thing to end us this morning. It says, preserve me, O God. 
for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no God apart from you. Adoration. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you, know, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Glory to God that he loved us so much that he revealed himself to us through his word that we can enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.